Here on Gadget Lab, we dive deep into the tech universe, tackling questions like, is giving companies access to your genetic material a good idea? And are the latest phone releases really that different than the last ones? We want to help you make informed decisions about what is worth your attention. And here's something that is undeniably worth your time, a digital subscription to Wired. Lucky for you, we are giving Gadget Lab listeners an exclusive discount, 20% off an annual subscription to Wired. Just visit Wired.com and use the promo code GL20 to get 20% off a digital subscription. Use GL20 to get exclusive access to stories on the latest innovations like AI, deepfakes, and VR, as well as today's most talked about people in technology. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive Home and Auto Policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, everyone. I'm Lauren Good, a senior writer at Wired, and you're listening to The Gadget Lab. I'm here with my co-hosts, Wired senior writer Ariel Pardes. Hello. And Wired senior editor Michael Calori. Aloha. Today, we're talking about what happens when big tech takes over smaller products. Later in the show, we'll talk about Google buying Fitbit, raising the question of whether Google now has outsized control and power over the tech we use. But first, Facebook introduced a new logo on Monday. Instead of Facebook, it's now Facebook. I'm trying to say that with emphasis. I'm not sure if I accomplished that, but basically it's Facebook in all caps. And that logo is now a lot more prominent on all of Facebook's platforms. Ariel, you wrote about this for Wired.com. What exactly is Facebook doing here? Well, Facebook, excuse me, Facebook has been moving toward this kind of brand consistency for a while now. You'll recall that over the summer, the company added Facebook, the name, to its other products. So Instagram became Instagram from Facebook, more clearly labeling who owns that product. Um, it's also pushed to integrate its various messaging services on the back end. So someday soon, you may send in a message on WhatsApp and it'll show up on someone else's messenger app or Instagram or something like that. Um, and it started reporting out its quarterly growth numbers in the aggregate. So it stopped breaking out users from Instagram and Messenger and WhatsApp and Facebook separately and just referring to them all as users of the Facebook family. So the rebranding here is really just like a visual expression of that. There's a truly hilarious design blog that Facebook put out explaining each of the little decisions it's made here. It includes language like, and this is a quote, the subtle softening of the corners and diagonals adds a sense 
of optimism. <laughs> and also there's an, an empathetic color palette. That's or something right. Like it's this. an empathetic color palette. Um, but really what this rebranding is doing is reminding you that Facebook, the company, is more than just Facebook, the app. Mark Zuckerberg really wants you to know that Big Blue is not the only thing to associate with that name. It's actually a family of apps. Um, it's sort of like one of those family portraits where everyone is wearing like a white button down and jeans and no one looks really happy and the kids are like, I don't even want to be in this family. <laughs> but they're all like matching and pretending to smile for the camera. That's that's Facebook. Mike, what's your take on this? I, I have one of those family photos, actually. <laughs> are you like at the beach? Uh, no, we're in a photo studio. Oh, it's, God. It's, it grows more and more horrifying each year. <laughs> What I'm waiting to happen is for the person in the photo to age and for me to look like I'm still 19, but that hasn't happened yet. Uh, That's my wish every Christmas. Um, (laughs) So the most interesting thing for me about the rebranding is something that I saw in one of the reports that I read. It was in Bloomberg. Uh, They spoke to the chief marketing officer at Facebook. His name is Antonio Lucio. And he said that there are actually internal discussions at the company about changing the name of the larger company of Facebook to something else, a la Alphabet and Google. So there would be like a bigger company that has a different name, and then Facebook is just one product within within that company. But they didn't do that, I think probably for obvious reasons, right? Like Facebook is such a powerful brand, and they want to be the company that brings you the tools that you love. Like uh, Instagram is from Facebook. It's not Instagram from I don't know, like Zucktown or whatever they would call it. I think you should get in touch with that marketing officer and perhaps suggest Zucktown. Yes. (laughs) Zucktown, USA. Um, The global citizen. But, you know, I I think that... the reason that they did it is probably because they didn't want to be perceived as running away from all the problems that they've had over the last couple of years with data privacy, with, you know, uh, trolls and election tampering and the free speech issues that they're dealing with right now with the current election. Uh, and it probably would have thrown off that that perception. Um, the other thing that I'm thinking about is how is this branding going to roll out over the world? Because the perception of Facebook here in the United States, specifically with like all of the things that we just mentioned about the problems that they're having, um, is very different from perception that Facebook has in Germany or in India or in... The Philippines. In the Philippines, mm-hmm. right? Like in India, you know, WhatsApp is a huge impact on culture. Everybody uses it to exchange information. There are like these big text chats Um, And, you know, people drop memes and videos into them. Um, You know, their perception of Facebook is of like a a giant that violates privacy. Then how is that going to affect their perception of WhatsApp now that it's much more clear that WhatsApp is a product of Facebook? I think those are excellent questions. And I do think that it's the timing of this is interesting and maybe a little odd given the antitrust concerns and investigations that are happening right now with Facebook in the United States specifically. But I agree with you on another point, which is this idea that Facebook wants to be the company that brings you the apps that you still love. Um, I think it's part of an effort to help 
you know, try to anyway foster goodwill among its community. All of those icky feelings that people may get right now from being on Facebook Big Blue, which is the main news app, don't necessarily translate to other apps like Instagram, which has become kind of a glossy, aspirational magazine for modern times, or WhatsApp, which, as you point out, is a giant utility, uh, not just in the U.S., but for people around the world. And back when we talked about the portal, you know, the Facebook video chatting piece of hardware that you put in your kitchen counter, when we talked about that on this show earlier, I joked that maybe in some way Facebook is trying to um, earn goodwill among the kids Mm. because I don't think future generations are looking at the big blue Facebook app the way that we have uh, effectively growing up in some of our more you know formative years of our our 20s and 30s with Facebook right Mm -hmm. Uh, and like you know quote unquote older people are using Facebook to like connect with grandparents and and like share photos of their adult kids and things like that. But like the kids growing up now aren't using Facebook in that same way, but they may be using Instagram and they may be using WhatsApp and they may be using um, other apps that Facebook could eventually acquire. And so Facebook is basically shouting Facebook now, which each of those apps. Um, And I think Ariel brings up a good analogy about that, you know, it being a big designer brand that's stamping its name on one of its other, you know, perhaps lesser collections, but making it still well known to everybody like this is a Facebook product. So if you like this, maybe you'll maybe you'll like us a little bit more. Yeah. Remember when Target started introducing all of its little designer collections and then Target suddenly became not this like lame department store that sold like groceries and also bad clothes, but like the department store that everyone loves spending time in. Yeah. Facebook wants to be Target. Yeah. Tar- it, it wants to be tar. It doesn't want to be Target. It wants, it wants to be Target. Target. And I love a good Target collection. I'm going to be honest. <laughs> they have some cool stuff. They absolutely do. Although City Target is kind of uh, weird. City Target is like Portal. Hasn't quite <laughs> caught off. We'll see. It's not for most people, but grandparents love it. <laughs> um, I, you know, one last thing about Facebook is that uh, I use Facebook Lite. Uh, which is like the low bandwidth version of the app. Oh, fewer and, carbs? Yes, exactly. Fewer carbs. Uh, it's it's yeah, Facebook Ultra. It's really good because it doesn't have animations. Uh, videos don't autoplay. You have to tap through to see the high resolution version of any photo that's uploaded there. Um, you know, and like the emoji reactions don't jump out of the screen or anything. They just appear. And like it doesn't have any soft corners. It doesn't have any special typography. Everything is like high visibility low animation it doesn't feel soft at all it feels like you know 2004 on the web and like honestly that's what i like about it so you're using it as a utility yeah but we should also just make the point before we go to the next topic that like this is is all a perception thing at the end of the day whatsapp is still an application that could be used for civil unrest um Instagram could still be a platform for political disinformation, especially now that we've seen Facebook take some sort of stance on how it's going to handle political ads in this upcoming election cycle in the U.S. I mean, all of the problems still exist on Facebook, but they have done this this rebrand. And it's our responsibility to try to dissect that. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's take a quick break. And then when we come back, we're going to talk about Google and Fitbit. This podcast is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Each episode features insight you won't find anywhere else from the center of the conversation surrounding emerging technologies like AI. Right now on the podcast, you can hear a special episode where Brad Smith lays out Microsoft's vision for a vibrant marketplace driving the new AI economy. 
to hear more, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Hackers and cybercriminals have always held this kind of special fascination. Obviously, I can't tell you too much about what I do. It's a game. Who's the best hacker? And I was like, well, this is child's play. I'm Dina Temple-Raston, and on the Click Here podcast, you'll meet them and the people trying to stop them. We're not afraid of the attack. We're afraid of the creativity and the intelligence of the human being behind it. Click Here, stories about the people making and breaking our digital world. AI machines, satellite, engine ignition. Click Here. And liftoff. Click Here, every Tuesday and Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the Gadget Lab. Late last week, Google announced it would buy activity and health tracking company Fitbit for $2.1 billion. Both companies put out statements about this. Google says it bought Fitbit to bring together the best AI, software, and hardware in order to spur innovation in wearables. And Fitbit, for its part, said it never sells your data and that your health data will not be used for Google's advertising purposes. Of course, there's still lots of questions about how this data will otherwise be used by Google. And there's also the very real question of whether the deal will be approved by US regulators, especially since Google is already being scrutinized. Let's put that aside for a moment though, and let's just say the deal goes through. What does it mean for Google and Fitbit? Mike, would you like to start? Uh, sure, I, I think it means we're going to see a lot more Google branded things that you put on your body. Right. So Google has always been really good at buying hardware companies so that they could catch up to the competition. Right. Like they bought the the bulk of HTC's smartphone team, which now works on the Pixel. They also bought a portion of Fossil. We're not really sure exactly how much of Fossil they bought or which parts of Fossil they bought. But basically, they're taking that team and they're applying that to wearable technology. So now, you know, Fitbit has great experience in wearables and they uh, have all of the health tracking stuff and like the data uh, visualizations in the app, they're going to be using all of that. So they're well poised to catch up to their main competitors in the wearable business. And it's important to note that now they have essentially what Apple has. They have a phone, they're going to have a watch, they're going to have the software that controls it all, and they're going to have the cloud services that power all of it. So they're going to be able to play with the full stack. And I think that is probably what this means for the future of Google. Yeah, but it's not just a hardware play, right? Like, this is also hugely about data. Google loves data. (laughs) They are a data company. And buying Fitbit means that they get data from 28 million users who have been recording their step counts, their heart rate readings, their sleep time, their menstrual cycles, their location. It's sort of unclear exactly how Google will use this, but I think it's unquestionable that that's a big attractive piece of buying Fitbit Mm -hmm. Um, and that they'll continue to get this data from people who continue to wear Fitbit and Google branded devices. Yeah. I think it's fair to say on some level that this better positions Google to compete with Apple and hardware, but I think that's on a superficial level. 
sure, Google has the Pixel, and I think it's a nicely designed smartphone. And now they're going to have a watch. If they keep Fitbit's watch business, we don't know if they will, or if they'll just take the IP and they'll make something of their own. You know, the Fitbit IP combined with the Fossil IP, right? They right. certainly have the parts now to make something. But they certainly don't have the manufacturing prowess of a company like Apple either. And they're not shipping at the same volume as Apple. And perhaps in some way, Google will use that argument to regulators to say, you know, here's why this deal should go through, because in hardware specifically and in health tracking, we really haven't made that much of a dent. Um, but I do wanted to play a little audio clip from Marketplace, which is NPR's flagship economic news program. And this clip is from June of 2015. This is the day that Fitbit became a publicly traded company and co-founder and CEO James Park was asked about the potential of acquisition. Let's say, just for argument's sake, that Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple, who's got, I think, $190 billion in the bank, comes to you and says... I'll give you, James, $2 billion for your company. What do you say? Um, you know, we've really never been focused on uh, exits as a company. Um, really, the key to our success has been uh, being really heads down and focusing on growing the business over the years. That was kind of an, an interesting pregnant pause after the um, though. <laughs> uh, again, oh, there's we're focused on business. <laughs> So obviously, in this case, the question was about Apple buying Fitbit for $2 billion, not Google. But what's striking is how determined Park is not to entertain thoughts of an exit at that point in time and say instead the company's path to success is just putting its head down and working on Fitbit. And I think that Fitbit should definitely be viewed as an early success story in this era of wearables. But it also shows exactly what happens when you put your head down and big tech decides to come in and do the exact thing you're doing. Um, I mean, really, Fitbit's position in the market became weakened once the Apple Watch came out in 2015 and also once Chinese manufacturers started making wearables that you could buy for $15, like the Xiaomi Mi Band, that did almost exactly the same thing that Fitbit did. So yeah. I think Fitbit got caught a little bit flat-footed. Um, I think a lot of people really love Fitbit. I think on the downside, we really don't know yet exactly how Google is going to use this company. Can we just talk for a minute about what a Pixel watch would look like. Sure. Because I'm not dropping this. Okay. Uh, as as a Pixel user, I think this this is like tremendously exciting. Ex uh, especially exciting to me because I hate smartwatches. <laughs> I do wear a connected wearable, but it's the the uh, the Withings one, the first steel activité, because uh -huh. uh, it has hands on it and it looks like a watch. And you look at it and it tells you the time, which is exactly what I want. But it also counts my steps. Uh, they make a version that does heart rate, but I don't and like you that You never one. have to charge it either. Right. It uses a coin cell. So the one that does heart rate, you have to charge like, you know, once every five days or so, uh, which I was not into because then I would just it would just go in the drawer, which is what a lot of people do with their Fitbits. Mm -hmm. Right. So I'm really excited about a Pixel watch. So what do you think this looks like? You're Ivy Ross right now, who we've had on this show before. <laughs> right. She leads design for the Google hardware team. Well, what are you what are you drafting at this moment? I'm I'm not as cool as Ivy, but <laughs> yeah, we know. Yeah, 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 yeah. Thank you. Um, I think it's well. It's going to have an OLED screen, probably, right? It's going to be able to do all the things that a high end Fitbit does. It's going to be able to send and receive, or it's going to be able to send you notifications. It's going to be able to access Google Assistant on your phone. It's going to have GPS. Uh, it will probably have connectivity so you can connect to Google's wireless earbuds. And it will almost certainly have a heart rate tracking monitor on it and will be directly tied into Google Health, which is on your phone. 
So, you know, beyond that, I don't know, it's going to it's going to look cool. It's going to match, you know, Google's visual aesthetic for other wearables that they've made, uh, like Google Glass. No, just kidding. Like the earbuds. Um, and I don't know. I think there is also possibility that we'll see lighter versions of the the whole Pixel smartwatch thing. Like we may see one with an e-ink screen. We may see one that just has like a plastic shield and you tap it and LEDs shine through the plastic and just shows you the time sort of like a fuel band did back in the day and like other wearables have done. So similar to how Google now has the Pixel 3, but they also have the Pixel 3a, which is a lower cost, lightweight version of the Pixel. You think they would do a, a lighter weight version of the uh, watch? Yeah, I think like the economics of it are different. Like I, I think that is particularly a market driven decision. But I think that the the watch thing would be more about what are you looking for in terms of utility. Like you'd have a full featured smartwatch. You would have the Google Apple Watch, and then you would have something that's a lot more lightweight and maybe more fashionable. Maybe looks better on people with smaller wrists uh, and is less intrusive as far as its presence on your body and what it does, you know, like it doesn't buzz, uh, you can't talk to it. So I don't know. It's just, it's a wide open path of uh, anticipation for me right now. <laughs> there was also a watch that was being uh, developed by Verily, which is Google's parent company, Alphabet, has another company called Verily that's a health sciences company. And they had they had talked a little bit about this watch that was only for internal use. And it was a very low-powered data-gathering wristwatch that they were using as part of internal health studies. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I kind of wonder what Google's intentions may be with Fitbit when it comes to institutional health, as well as just you know tracking your steps and your sleep and all that other consumer-facing stuff. Yeah. Well, this was a very fitting conversation. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> this is what happens when I host. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll do recommendations. Hey, everybody. It's Neil. I've got some huge news. Decoder is moving to Mondays and Thursdays. We're adding a second episode of the show. On Mondays, we'll have our classic interviews with CEOs and other troublemakers. I think we're going to have to start having conversations about how do we pay those jobs that can't be done by AI. And on Thursdays, we'll be explaining big topics in the news with Verge reporters, experts, and other friends of the show. There's a new generation of people on the internet. Google search has always sucked for them. So, you know, there's no reason for them to be loyal. They can just go to TikTok. This is going to be really fun. I'm very excited about all this. So go subscribe wherever you get your podcasts now. All right, we're back for recommendations. Ariel, you go first. What's yours? I'm going to recommend something that I believe I have recommended before, but it's a product I love, a product I continue to buy, and have just bought again for the, the fifth or sixth time. It is the Lectern 1917 Notebooks. These are just super nice, high-quality notebooks. You can get them in all sizes, in all shapes, and all colors, and they are lovely. I just use them for sort of jotting down my thoughts. Sometimes when I'm stressed, I like to watercolor, and the pages of these hold water really well, which is like a rare thing for a notebook. Um, the ones I buy have little dots, so they're good for people who bullet journal. I don't personally bullet journal, but if that's something you're into, you can totally do that. I like the dots because it frees you up to either write uh, or draw or sketch or make charts. Sometimes I like to make charts for myself. <laughs> do you make charts in watercolor? 
Sometimes, yeah. See, I feel like I know you pretty well, but this watercolor thing is blowing my mind. Oh, I'm not like good at it, but it's just something that I do when I'm stressed and like, I don't know, just want to put on music and do something out of my head for a little bit. Sure. Yeah. Anyway, they're really nice. Uh, like I said, this is like my fifth or sixth one and they're great. I have a very important question for you. Mm-hmm. Do you finish your notebooks? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You fill them all the way to the end. Yeah. This is like I had to buy a new one because I've filled four or five of them. Do you finish your notebooks? Yes. I am but so bad about this. Also, like if it's like December and I have five pages left, I just get a new one and start a mm-hmm. new one in January. Okay. I try to do like one notebook per year, although like this one I started in January and like it's done. It's a big year so for me. many half-filled notebooks. Mm. I think it's also because I often buy Muji notebooks and they're $3 a pop. And then sometimes the binding isn't that great. And if it starts to come out of the holes a little bit or just Mm -hmm. something or I spill something on it and looking at it bothers me, it costs very little to just get a new notebook. That's why you should get a lectern 1917. They're hardbound, so they're a little bulky to carry around, but uh, I like them. That's a great recommendation. Maybe that's going to be my 2020 goal. Buy one of those and fill it. And fill it all the way to the end. Do it. Mike, what's your recommendation? Uh, So I'm recommending a cookbook. Um, It is called The Complete Mediterranean Cookbook. And the author is America's Test Kitchen. So we love America's Test Kitchen because they do a great job of thoroughly testing all the recipes and the techniques for the recipes, which they write into the recipes in their cookbooks. Um, And this book came to me because I have been trying to crack this cuisine for a little while, but there's something called the Mediterranean diet, which is what a lot of people do. Oh, uh, yeah, it's, yeah. You know, a lot of legumes, a lot of vegetables with the occasional fish. So because that is sort of a fad, there are a lot of cookbooks out there with Mediterranean in the title, which are geared specifically towards people who are just like doing a diet. And the Mediterranean diet, and actually this cookbook talks about that, is not something that you do as a diet. It is a way of life. It's a way of eating and it's a way of like changing, like this is what you're going to eat for breakfast from now on. These are the types of preparations you're going to do when you make these items that you've been making your whole life. So it's sort of about changing, you know, who you are and how you eat throughout the day um, more so than it is just like, here's a bunch of recipes that you can eat if you want to lose weight. It's a great cookbook to have because there's so many wonderful vegetable recipes in there. So if you do a CSA or if you just like want to incorporate more vegetables, just get this book. It's amazing. It's called The Complete Mediterranean Cookbook, and it's by America's Test Kitchen. That sounds great. All right. My recommendation this week is not as fun as analog notebooks or cooking. Although if you listen to this podcast episode, you might want to go buy a a bunch of paper notebooks and never use digital communications again. (laughs) This week, I really enjoyed the Recode Decode interview with Edward Snowden. I know I've recommended Recode Decode interviews before uh, by my former colleague, Kara Swisher. She is, per usual, uh, a firecracker of an interviewer. And this one's, it's a long one. Edward Snowden has a new book out called Permanent Record. We've also written about this book in uh, Wired. So please go to wired.com if you're looking for more information about that. Of course, we'll put it in the show notes. But one of the reasons why I really liked this conversation with Kara Swisher is because, you know, Kara has a certain interview style. She tends to really want to 
dominate the conversation. She sometimes interrupts her guests and asks them the question, two, same question two or three times as part of a follow-up style because she really wants the straight answer. She doesn't want her guests to talk around her or give the, you know, the typical sort of prepared remarks that they might have before going into a big interview. And she really pushes Edward Snowden on some of his motivations behind why he decided, you know, back in 2013 to share information about a, a, you know, global surveillance scheme with journalists and make this classified information public knowledge. And I'm sure some of you remember this from back in 2013. And Edward Snowden is now living in exile in Moscow as a result of all of this. Um, and, and his book is an auto, is autobiographical tale of this. But Carol really, really pushes in on some of the, I think, some of the more important questions. And he's also, he's really uh, quite an eloquent speaker. And you kind of just like wind him up and he goes. And at some point she realizes that she should just let him go. Mm-hmm. You know, so he just, he just goes off. This is why I work with journalists. And people don't understand this because, uh, you know, they only hear talking heads on the news. Um, and, and the allegations that are like third hand, uh, the number of documents that I have revealed, the number of documents that I have published that I've disclosed is zero. Uh, what I did was I gathered evidence, uh, a corpus of material that I believe showed unlawful, unconstitutional or unethical behavior on the part of the United States intelligence community. I then provided this to journalists. I found the whole thing fascinating. I really did. So, um, People have very strong opinions on Edward Snowden, and that's one of the things they address in the podcast, whether or not he's a traitor, a hero, a whistleblower, what is the best way to describe him. And um, it's worth listening to, no matter which side of the fence you fall on. That sounds awesome. Yeah. Well, thanks, everybody, for their great recommendations. And thanks to our listeners for joining us again this week. If you enjoyed this episode or if you have any other feedback at all, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice. Really, we love to hear your feedback. And if you leave a review, it helps surface the show so that other people can find it more easily and enjoy it as well. And you can find all of us directly at our Twitter handles. Ariel, what's your handle? At Pardesoteric. Mike? I am at Snack Fight. At Snack Fight. And after talking about your book, I feel like a snack. Let's go have some snacks. Oh, I'm at Lauren Good with an E at the end. I forgot about myself. Don't worry about me. Just just message Ariel and Mike. And you can also message us at our main handle at Gadget Lab. Thanks for listening. And we'll be back next week. Want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? Come on, of course you do. Introducing The Jordan Harbinger Show. The Jordan Harbinger Show, which Apple named one of its best of 2018, is aimed at making you a better informed, more critical thinker so you can get a sense of how the world actually works and come to your own conclusions about what's happening, even inside your own brain. Jordan dives into the minds of fascinating people, from athletes, authors, and scientists, to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now.